This week is the penultimate Parsha of the Torah, Parsha's Hazinu. Of course, it tells us an incredible prophetic song that really goes through a retrospective and a prospective of Jewish history. Of course, a lot to talk about. I saw this year something really interesting. If you count up the words of the Parsha, you'll discover that there's 614 words in the Parsha, which is one off from 613, which we know that that's the amount of mitzvot that there are in the Torah. Apparently, the Gona Vilna, the great giant of the 18th century, he said that the reason why that there's this precise number of words in Parshas Ha'azinu is because each one of these 613 words corresponds to one of the 613 mitzvos. And I read a book, or I saw a book, I perused a book this week called Shira Lechaim, A Song for Life, where he goes through all the 613 words of Ha'azinu in order and demonstrates how each word corresponds to a mitzvah in the order that they appear in the Torah. So the first mitzvah of the Torah is be fruitful and multiply, and that is hint in the word ha'azinu. And the next mitzvah of the Torah is circumcision, and that is hinted in the next word of the parsha hashamay vataber vatishma ha'aretz imrefi. He explains how each one of these words is an acronym that's hinting at the corresponding mitzvah. And he does 613 mitzvahs, and the final word of the parsha, he explains that that is hinting at the seven rabbinic mitzvahs. So I was just so blown away by this book, and I wanted to share that before we got started here. Now this Shabbos that is upcoming is called Shabbos Shuva, the Shabbos of repentance. And there are several Shabboses amongst the year that are special Shabboses and are given special titles. So, for example, we have the Shabbos before Pesach. It's called Shabbat or Shabbos Hagadol, the great one, the giant one, the large one. And we have the Shabbos that we read Parshas B'Shalach. It's called Shabbos Shira, the Shabbos of the song. This Shabbos, where we read Parshas Hazino, is called Shabbos Shuva, the Shabbos of repentance, because, of course, we are amidst the 10 days of repentance. And the Haftorah that we read on this Shabbos, starts with the word, Shuva Yisrael, return, O Israel. And of course, it's the Shabbos before Yom Kippur, which is the day which is designated for repentance. So I wanted to speak about this element of the parsha, the fact that this is the time that we're told to get in the mode of repentance. And the angle that I want to approach is the whole question of Yom Kippur fatigue. And certainly I would say the general unease that we have with repentance. And my sense is that people have Yom Kippur fatigue and unease with repentance for several different reasons. And I made a list of six different reasons why people don't like 
repentance, don't like Yom Kippur, and feel a little bit just not at ease with this whole subject. So I think the first claim is as follows. Yom Kippur is a day of repentance, right? Okay, I can't do it on Yom Kippur. I'll do it eventually. I'll get to it eventually. It's not about Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is just a, a day that I just can't can't work on it. I think that's one reason why people have a hard time with Yom Kippur and repentance. A second reason is people say, hey, I can't repent. I'm too much of a sinner. I'm lost. I'm helpless. I'm beyond repair. Yom Kippur can't help me. A third reason why people have a hard time with repentance in Yom Kippur is retrospective. Hey, I did this last year. Last year, I really focused on Yom Kippur and repentance. And it didn't work. Nothing really changed. It is useless. A fourth reason why we have a hard time with Yom Kippur and with repentance is that when we think about how much we need to do to get our spiritual life in order, there is so much work to do. And there's just not enough time. What can we really accomplish in one day? Or even if we take the whole 10 days of repentance, we take from Rosh Hashanah through Shabbos Shuva, all the way through Yom Kippur, I have so much work to do, and there's just not enough time. The fifth reason why I think people have a hard time with this is that, hey, does it really matter? We're told that everyone's judged on Rosh Hashanah. And that judgment is sealed on Yom Kippur. And we got to make sure that we become righteous and we become a tzaddik or else we're all going to die. That's what we're told, right? Maybe it doesn't matter. I see lots of healthy, robust, prosperous sinners. They don't repent and they seem to be doing just fine. What's the point of trying to really focus on repentance on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? And finally, this may be the one that we feel most intimately. I get so hungry and I get so cranky and the prayer is so long. I can't concentrate on repentance. I just want to end the misery of Yom Kippur. In my opinion, these six reasons Six myths and misconceptions about Yom Kippur, I think, are the things that inhibit us from maximizing this wonderful day. So what I want to do today is dispel these six myths and misconceptions one at a time, and along the way, show some powerful ideas on this day, this most auspicious festival, to make it both exciting and, of course, productive. So let's begin with the first reason why people have Yom Kippur fatigue and unease with repentance. And that is that, hey, what's so special about Yom Kippur? I'll do it some other time. I'll get to organizing, assessing, fixing my spiritual life eventually. Why does it need to be today? So I think the first thing we need to do is to appreciate the specialness and the uniqueness of these days. 
The verse tells us in Isaiah 55, Call out to God, seek God when he is findable, when you could access him. It says the Talmud, there are days where God is close to us. And that is the 10 days of repentance, the 10 days spanning from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. There's an important insight over here. On these days, starting with Rosh Hashanah and culminating and reaching a climax on Yom Kippur, these are the days that God is the most close to us. But conversely, we could say that the rest of the year, God is less close to us, less accessible. He's close now, but not later. And therefore, what we could do today, what we do in Yom Kippur during this whole week, vastly outweighs what we could do some of the time down the line. And therefore, it's an opportunity that we ought not to squander. And if I try to do the identical work sometime in December, it's going to pale in comparison to what I could do when God is here, he's close, he is accessible. I may have said this story last year, but even if I did, it is worthwhile to repeat it. And this is a story about Rabbi Weiss, who is the chief rabbi of the Supreme Rabbinical Court of Jerusalem. Very famous rabbi, still alive today. And he grew up in a small shtetl outside of Preshburg. And he was a small kid in 1939 when the Nazis swept into town. And because he was living in a small shtetl, didn't really have access to global politics. Didn't really know what this was, you know, what this portended. And therefore, he was a little kid. And his father said, go to the big city and go speak to the rabbi of the big city to find out what we should do. What does this mean for our community? So he snuck away and traveled the several kilometers to the big city, goes and meets the rabbi and says to him, you know, my father sent me to find out what we should do. So he says to him like this. He says, this is, this is it. This is, this is terrible. The Jews are going to suffer mightily. However, because you came here, I want to help you. I have a ticket for a train ride to take you or the bearer of this ticket to England. And this is part of the famous kinder transports, as we know. And therefore, he told him, go pack your stuff and say goodbye to your parents and come tomorrow to the train station and we'll get you to safety. So the kid hustles back to his house and conveys his message and quickly his parents prepare for him a bag with his stuff. They kiss him goodbye and they send him onto the train. And before long, a thousand Jewish children end up in England in safety and they survive the war over there. Now, ultimately, this kinder transport program ended up saving 10,000 Jewish children And I'd like to mention that my wife's grandmother, she should live me well, was five years old when she was hustled out of Austria, out of Vienna, and she spent the war years with a foster family 
in England, but she survived the war as a result. So anyhow, this uh, rabbi today, who is today a rabbi, is telling over the story what happened. They get to England, and they're all put up in various different places. And the king at the time, the person who orchestrated this whole program, he wanted to meet the Jewish children that he saved from the inferno about to engulf Europe. So they told the kids, okay, in a couple days, the king's going to come. Everyone make sure you're dressing your finest, and we're all going to go and greet the king. So the appointed day arrives, and all the kids are lining the streets. A thousand kids, they're lining the streets, and they're all cheering, and the king is coming through with his cavalcade to go look at the uh, assembled children that he saved. And something unusual happened. One of the kids starts to run and scream and lunge at the king. He says, my knees beat to knees beat to knees beat to you. So, of course, all the bodyguards tackle the small little kid. But the king hears the commotion. So he turns and says, bring that kid in. I want to speak to him. So the kid has his audience with the king. And he tells him, he's like, you've done such an amazing thing. Look, there's a thousand Jewish children that you're saving from the war in Europe. It's an amazing, incredible act of kindness and benevolence. But how can I be fully happy? My father, my mother, my siblings, my cousins, they're all stuck in Europe. How can I be happy? I want to be happy, but I can't be happy. The king says, okay, tell me the names of your family members. So he tells them the names, father, mother, siblings, cousins. And two weeks later, all those people are also brought to England and survived the war. This rabbi, now many years later, would tell over the story and says, think about it. You know, if the king was in his palace, there's no way in the world that a small Jewish child, a small Jewish refugee, can have an audience with the king. But something unique happened over here. The king came to you. And you have this one chance, this one opportunity to save people's lives. And one kid did it, and 999 kids didn't do it. And he's always say, that is the 10 days of repentance. We're told in scripture, seek out God when he is close. There's times where he's close and the times where he's not close. There's times where he's, so to speak, proverbially coming to visit us and there's times where he's proverbially in the palace. And now he's here. And now we have access. And now we can change ourselves. And now we can make our requests. And the rest of the year we can't. So this is myth number one. Myth number one is, oh, you know what? It's really important to do all the work of your care for repentance and kind of make it a catalog of your life and your direction in life, your trajectory in life. It's very important. I'll do it some other time. You can't just do it some other time. Now is the auspicious moment, 10 days of closeness. And the closest of them all is Yom Kippur. There's no time in the year where the Almighty is as close. And the ability for us to do amazing things and to change our lives and to earn repentance and purification and to accomplish great things, there's no time of the year that matches it. The verse tells us.
כי ביום הזה, on this day, on Yom Kippur, יחפר עליכם, the money will atone for you, he will expiate your sins, he will purify you, lifne Hashem Tataro, close to God, you shall become pure. Talmud tells us that 364 days a year, there's something called a Satan, a Satan, that's there causing problems and causing distance and being an obstacle, separating man and God. But there's one day a year, Yom Kippur, where he has no power. It's an opportunity to access the king where he is motivated by mercy and kindness exclusively. And what we could do today cannot be matched by any other day. Myth number one has been dispelled. What about myth number two? Myth number two is someone who looks at themselves and says, you know what? I got so much to do. I've been such a bad boy. I have neglected God for so long. Someone like me is truly hopeless. This too is a misconception. I want to quote you a teaching from the Rambam. Hachuva mechaperes alkol haaveros. Chuva, repentance. It atones for all sins. Now listen to this. Afilu rasha kol yamav. Even for someone's a sinner, a wicked person, their entire life, every day of their life. Va'asta chuva bacharona. But he does chuva. He repents at the very end of his life. Someone's on their deathbed. And they repent. Ein mastirun lo shum dav marisho. Their spiritual status is such that their sins are never going to be mentioned. By definition, we say that if you're alive, it means that you still have a chance to fulfill the reason why you were placed in this world. And by definition, the reason why you're placed in this world is to be righteous, is to be pure, is to be cleansed of any maladies, of any blemishes that your soul may have accrued over its journey. And therefore, if you're alive, you know, by definition, that it's not too late. And you know what? You are not lost. And your situation is not helpless. Moreover, another citation from the Rambam. What happens if someone was far and came back. They may think, hey, you know what? I was far, I was a sinner. I was very distant from the righteous. And now I returned, I came back, I repented, but I still have the scars of yesteryear. Says the Rambam. The matter is not so. Someone who is a returner, someone who is a Baal Teshuvah, someone who has done Teshuvah, has repented, that person is beloved before God as if that person never sinned in their lives. Moreover, this is a shocking point. The reward of someone who was a sinner and became righteous is greater than the person who never sinned in their lives. Because this person, they tasted the taste of sin and they decided to depart from it and they overcame their instinct and their Yetzirah. 
And he quotes the Talmud, the place, so to speak, the spiritual place where the Bali Chuva, where the people who do Chuva, people who repent, stand in heaven. Even the totally righteous Tzadikim, the people that never sin in their lives, cannot stand at that lofty level. Explains the Rambam, their stature is greater than the stature of people who have never sinned in their lives. What this is telling us is that not only someone who is very far, very distant, not only they're not helpless, if you're still alive, you could still repent and become close to God and fulfill your life's mission. Not only that, these people have more opportunity to become even greater than the people that never sinned to begin with. Indeed, myth number two, someone could say that they're lost, is just plain not true. It's a misconception. It is a myth. But then someone will say, you know what? There's so much to do and there's just not enough time. So first of all, there's an important insight and that is that on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is an accelerant. Meaning that if someone repents a little bit on Yom Kippur, that is amplified over their entire spiritual makeup and they've achieved total expiation of all their sins. If someone becomes in the category of repenters on Yom Kippur, that results in them being totally atoned for, totally made pure. And that opportunity is only on Yom Kippur, not on any other day. This can be explained with the following parable from Rabbi Dessler. Rabbi Dessler told his students that on Yom Kippur, after you do all the repentance and after all the prayers, you're supposed to make a resolution. This is the New Year's resolution. But it has to be something very, very small. Don't make a big resolution, a tiny one. So the student came to him and said to him, I don't, I don't get it. I have so much I need to fix. I'm so rotten. And how could one small, tiny resolution change that? So he said to him, I want you to go to New York City and go to Manhattan and go to the Empire State Building. And then when you walk into the lobby and go into the elevator, you're looking up, it's a thousand feet in the air. And how do you get there? With the push of one small button. And he told over this exaggerated story. There was once a person who wanted to get to the top floor of the building. So he walks into the elevator and he doesn't push the button. And of course, two minutes later, the lights turned off. And he freaks out, the lights turning off and he's in this secluded box. He starts freaking out and screaming and banging on the door and eventually they come and they save him. They say, what's the, what's the matter? He's like, the elevator is perfectly functional. So the person said, I, I cannot imagine. It's totally illogical to, to climb a thousand feet in the air. It's, it doesn't make sense. You could only push one button and you accomplish all of that. That's Yom Kippur. The magical day, the accelerant of Yom Kippur is that one small, tiny micro step of repentance is amplified a thousand fold, a million fold. On Yom Kippur, you push that one little button of repentance and it shoots you up all the way 
to heaven all the way to the top of the mountain. Yes, it's not logical. It doesn't make sense that when someone has so much to do, so many things to fix, and there's so little time, it doesn't make sense that you should be able to accomplish that much in so little amount of time. But that's what Yom Kippur is. Yom Kippur is the elevator up the skyscraper. Indeed, myth three can also be discarded. But then someone will say, you know what? I did it last year. And I really worked on Yom Kippur. And I really tried to repent. And I got into the prayers. And I really made an effort to change myself on Yom Kippur. And you know what? It didn't help me at all. I'm the same person that I was then. Obviously, it didn't work. Why try? It's futile. So, a few points. First of all, our sages tell us that if someone repents in Yom Kippur, their soul is cleansed of all the blemishes that the sin had brought upon it. And even if post-repentance, they do a blunder, they sin, and you know what? They slip into the same pattern that they had done prior to repentance. That does not call into question in any way the efficacy of their repentance. If someone repents properly, and again, repentance in Hebrew, a small, little, tiny, micro speck of repentance goes a very long way. But if someone does that properly, if there's an element of sincerity and, and genuineness to their Yom Kippur, it works. It's just magical. It's the one day God's super close. We just have to ask and we get it. And even if post Yom Kippur, we revert back to the means, it doesn't matter. We're still cleansed of all our sins. But I would also tell this person, hey, you think you didn't change. We are not aware of our own change. It's almost like when you you have a kid and you don't see him for six months and they go through a growth spurt and like, whoa, it's like you just shot up. But if you see that kid every day, you don't see the small changes. And, you know, we ourselves, our self-perception is so diluted, we tend to not be impartial observers to our own transformation. My grandfather, blessed memory, used to say that spiritual growth is like an airplane. When you're going really slowly, we're about to take off, you're on the ground still, you make all kinds of noise and it really feels like you're rumbling down the runway. It really feels like something's happening. But then you take off and you ascend to uh, 30,000 feet and you're cruising at 600 miles an hour. It doesn't feel like you're going at all. It's totally quiet. Maybe there's a little bit of the reverberations, the turbulence. But for the most part, you're cruising, you're advancing very fast, but your perception is you're not really doing it. You don't feel it. And it's almost the exact opposite. When we are just getting started, we feel like we're accomplishing a lot when really we're accomplishing very little. But once we have that momentum, we take off, we're in the air, and we're truly improving and traversing a great distance, by design, we feel like we're not changing. 
So it's quite possible that people, you know, the people's development, the people's transformation really happens in these big chunks on Yom Kippur. We're just not aware of it because we're soaring through heaven. It just feels natural. But really, we have been transformed. So we're going to discard myth number four as well. But then you have the extreme cynic. And the extreme cynic will say, does it matter anyway? I see all kinds of sinners, wicked people. They don't go to shul. They don't pray. They don't study Torah. They don't do mitzvot. They don't have good character. They have nothing, so to speak, in the way of what the Almighty prescribes to us in the Torah. They don't repent. And they seem to be doing a-okay. This is a good question. In fact, the Talmud tells us in the book of Rosh Hashanah, page 16b, that on Rosh Hashanah, there's three books that are opened, one for completely wicked people, one for completely righteous people, and one for everyone else who's in the middle. And the completely righteous people on Rosh Hashanah, they get stamped for life. And the completely wicked people on Rosh Hashanah get stamped for death. And everyone else in the middle, they're up in the air. And they have 10 days to have their verdict determined. If they take these 10 days of repentance and they really try to utilize it, well, then they end up in the righteous camp in life. But if they don't take these 10 days, then they're going to end up with the wicked and they're going to die. So if you just read this Talmud, you would say, wait a minute. Rosh Hashanah just happened, right? How many people didn't go to shul? How many people are sinners? They do all kinds of sins. They take the Torah not as the guidebook of what they should do, but maybe what they should not do. And they seem to be strong. And they seem to be robust. And they seem to be doing very well. And the Torah, the Talmud tells us that they should have died right away in Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah morning, everyone wakes up and, you know, 90% of the people who are sinners or whatever it is, 10%, every year 10% which lose 10%, the sinners should die. So how does the Talmud tell us that the sinners end up in the book of death on Rosh Hashanah Kippur? They seem to survive it. There's a very deep insight in the answer. What would happen if on Rosh Hashanah morning... 10% of the people, perfectly healthy, no pre-existing conditions, no coronavirus, perfectly healthy, just drop dead. And then when we study the dead, we say, hey, wait a minute, these are all the people that we know were sinners, that disregarded Torah, disregarded the mitzvos. And look, they all died. What would happen then? It would be a miracle. It would vanquish any room for doubts at all in faith. So in effect, if the people who were sinners died on Rosh Hashanah, everyone else would lose their free will. And we have a principle that the Almighty hides, so to speak, behind a facade that allows free will to exist. The mind does not put his thumb on the scale. A revealed miracle is going to banish free will 
And the whole purpose of existence is that people should have the ability to choose good or to choose bad. They have to have a certain balance. And if something like this, a miracle like this happens, then there's no more free will. So here's the insight. On Rosh Hashanah, you have the wicked people. And it's decreed upon them that they're going to die. And really, they should die. They should all collapse Rosh Hashanah morning. Instantly. But what's the problem? The problem is, is that everyone else is going to lose their free will afterwards. When someone is condemned to die in Rosh Hashanah, what that means is that they're only kept alive only because if they were to die, it would interfere with everyone's free will. Meaning, there's life. And the people who are living life are the people that the Almighty created the world for, that they have to struggle with free will. And there's things pulling them in both directions, and they have to make choices, and they have the opportunity to become great, or to, God forbid, do the opposite. And everything else that exists, the entire universe, is the environment, the arena, the tapestry for humans' free will. So, for example, if there is an animal, animals don't have this level of free will. So why do animals exist? They exist to be part of the world in which we can have free will. When someone is condemned to die on Rosh Hashanah, they don't actually die, flatline, be buried. What it means is that they are no longer part of the living, meaning they are relegated to exist and to live and to breathe and to not die only because if they would die, everyone else's free will be, will be compromised. They are relegated to the background of existence. They become the arena of free will where everyone else exists. They become in the environment of the game, but they cease being players in it. The purpose of creation is for people to have free will. Everything else that exists, besides for humans, everything else that is created, that is, is there to facilitate our free will. When we are judged on Rosh Hashanah, are you going to have life? Are you going to have death? What that means is, are we going to be the main players, so to speak, in the universe? Are we going to live in the way that the Almighty intended when he created the world, meaning we're going to be caught up in this struggle. On one hand, we have opportunity for greatness. On the other hand, we have the peril of losing our stature. And that's life. And you know what death means? Death means you cease being a player, so to speak, and you're only there to facilitate the free will of the other people. If you're dead, so to speak, you are sidelined, you are put in the background for the people who are truly living. The Talmud tells us that the wicked are considered dead even when alive. What that means is, is that they are part of the spiritually inanimate background for the world and they're no longer participants within it. So what this means is, when people are judged for life and death on Rosh Hashanah Kippur, it's not about mere survival. For the righteous, they're given life, 
and the Torah's definition of life, and that is the opportunity to connect to the Almighty. And of course, included within that are all the necessary financial material necessities to achieve that. And the people who are condemned to die doesn't mean that they cease to breathe and to operate as an organism, but they cease to operate, so to speak, on that spiritually high level where their decisions, their free will choices are the things that really matter. They're now side players. They're the environment. They're the background in which the people who are living are living. You know, we say in our prayers, the second prayer of the Amidah prayer, that the Almighty is Mechayim Esim, which means he resuscitates the dead. Simply put, what that means is that in the future, all the people that are dead and come back alive. The problem is, is that if you read the Hebrew, it doesn't say that the Almighty will resuscitate the dead. It says the Almighty is currently resuscitating the dead. Maybe the explanation of this is that when we talk about in Jewish literature life and death, it's talking about spiritual life and death, eternal life and death, meaningful life and death. And maybe what this is hinting at is that even someone who was condemned to die, to die spiritually on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and they're dead, they're just the background, they're just the environment, they're the arena where free will happens, even those people are not lost. And the Almighty can resuscitate the dead if someone truly wants to have that free will to matter in this world, they could still get out of the background and join the main show, and the Almighty will facilitate that. But I think this this really should radically alter our perspective on what's happening here. I think it elevates it. It amplifies it. This is about do we matter or not? Are we part of the reason why the Almighty created the world? Or are we just everything else that's there to facilitate that? Adam was brought into a complete world because first you build the arena, first you set the stage, and then you have the main event. Adam is the main event because Adam has free will. Are we the main event? Do we have real life? Or are we like the fish or like the trees or like the animals? Are we part of creation that's just there to set the stage, to be the arena for the people who are like Adam who have to really live life? I think that really shapes Rosh Hashanah Kippur or frames Rosh Hashanah Kippur in a different way. And I think it should get our attention. Of course, we want to matter. And when the Almighty offers us life, he's offering us the opportunity to make an impact and to fulfill the meaning for which we were created. I think we could safely say that myth number five is indeed untrue. And finally, maybe the thing that is most vexing about Yom Kippur is that we get hungry and we get cranky and fasting is difficult and we can concentrate on repentance and the prayer is interminable. I think the way to solve this is to recognize that this is part of the opportunity. This is the day that we could achieve more than anything else. This is the day that every input that we put into the day is amplified a thousandfold. 
Isn't it wonderful that the Almighty designed this day so that we should be forced to do maybe the most difficult mitzvah to fast for 25 hours? And that is the day where the results, the output is most asymmetric? What an amazing thing that on the day that we have the most opportunity, we have the most skin in the game. The example we could give is, you know, suppose you know for sure that a certain stock's going up. You want to buy as much as possible to be able to get as much, to capture as much of the upside as possible. Maybe you should buy even options because that amplifies the return. We want to amplify the return of Yom Kippur. Every mitzvah they do is magnified a thousandfold. Shouldn't we try to do the biggest mitzvahs possible? The man says, I know it's hard to fast. I know it's long. I know it's a difficult day. But this is the day where everything is amplified. What a wonderful opportunity. But also, I think we could reframe this component of the day. You know, we think, hey, we're fasting. It must be a really bad day. But think about it. What was the first Yom Kippur? The first Yom Kippur was the final day of the 40 days that Moshe was in heaven to get the second set of tablets. Not the first time where it was a disaster when he came back down from the mountain. The third time, he comes back down to Yom Kippur with a second set of tablets. And the money says, I have fully forgiven the Jewish people as per your request. Moshe is in heaven. He's wrestling with angels. He's getting the mighty's Torah. And you know what he's not doing? He's not eating. He's not drinking. And on this day, we could, so to speak, experience that vicariously via Moses. And again, we wear white. And we say certain prayers out loud that we normally whisper. Because this is the day that we are elevated to be like angels. It's not that we don't want to eat. We don't need to eat on this day because we are akin to angels. So, of course, it's good advice to eat a lot, to drink a lot ahead of time. You'll be fine. You'll survive it. But realize that the fasting and the challenge and the, shall we say, misery of the way this day is designed is the feature, not the bug. It is a great opportunity, and yes, it's difficult, but you know what? This is the day that we can transform our lives more than any other day. May we all be so fortunate to maximize and utilize this opportunity. The Almighty is in our close proximity, and we have all kinds of excuses. There's all kinds of Yom Kippur fatigue. There's all kinds of reasons why we should say, you know what? Yom Kippur is difficult. It's so hard. It's not for me. Repentance is just, it's beyond me. The excuses are manifold, but they're all myths. They're all misconceptions. Let's maximize this day. Let's utilize this day. Let's transform ourselves this day and let us indeed become purified on the day that we are most close to the Almighty. My email address is, as always, rabbiwalbajima.com. It is a total pleasure to study this with you all, and I look forward to next time.